0: Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. Happy Grey Day. In a week where we're all talking about parties, it's also happy birthday to us because Romaniacs first debuted five years ago this week. Thanks to everyone who's listened to us, whether you've been here since week one or a minute ago. Now let's meet our panel. Naomi Smith is Chief Executive at Best of Britain. Hello, Naomi. Hello. Uh, it's great news for a Labour Party, but not our one. Uh, in Australia, Anthony Albanese is set to be the new PM after almost 10 years of Liberal Party rule. New Statesman's George Eaton points out there are now centre-left governments in America, Australia, Germany, Spain, Portugal, New Zealand and all five Nordic countries. Uh, the UK is the odd one out in both Europe and Anglophone countries. <laughs> um, do you think Scott Morrison's defeat is part of a, of a wave or did he blow it? Is there, are there basically local reasons why this happened?
1: I think modern conservatism is failing to offer solutions the world over, uh, hence why they've retreated into ever more populist uh, policies and, and and campaigning modus operandi's, um, and while there are certainly more push factors for voters away from conservative leaders, there still aren't so many pull factors su- towards social democratic and uh, centre left liberal parties in many countries. Although some left parties, in particular Portugal, have managed to reduce unemployment and boost GDP, so you know there there are exceptions to that. In terms of is there a wave? I think there is a hell of a lot for Number Ten to be concerned about in terms of what happened to Morrison. Uh, it should be sounding alarm bells certainly at CCHQ. You had a disliked Conservative leader whose photos can't even be used on campaign literature, and we've seen that here in the UK. Yeah. You know blue leaflets being turned green even. Um, a leader particularly disliked by women and younger educated voters who are recoiling from culture war rhetoric. A leader who most voters see as having little to no trustworthiness. Tick. Absolutely, we've got that here in the UK. Unable to deliver any kind of strategic plan for delivering with the cost of living crisis. Tick. Um, and a campaign that tried to stoke fears about immigrants arriving on small boats. Tick. But also, in the face of a Labour leader who appears pretty uninspiring, tick, we've got that here as well, but is maybe seen as a safe pair of hands. So uh, hopefully so a good, good portent good for
2: us. Good news for
0: uninspiring Labour leaders. Uh, Roz Taylor is the outgoing editor of the LSE's COVID-19 blog. Hi, Roz.
2: Hello, Dorian.
0: If you're outgoing, does that mean the pandemic is officially over?
2: Yeah. It's all over. You can't catch catch COVID anymore. It's just totally over. Yeah, monkeypox is the new black.
0: Yeah, Yeah. and uh, let's welcome the incoming editor of the LSE's monkeypox blog.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I did do Brexit before I did COVID-19, so there is a pattern there. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, Now, I'm I'm afraid this is a very London-centric question, but after 13 years of construction, the Elizabeth Line finally opened in pastures on Tuesday morning. Have you, uh, have you been on London's latest tourist attraction?
2: No, I haven't. I'm very frustrated because I've been just too busy with you know school runs and work to actually have time to do an, a journey that is not going to be essential for me yet. Unfortunately, the cro- uh, Crossrail Elizabeth Line doesn't actually go to many places I need to go to, but I will find an excuse just as soon as I get the opportunity. I did think, though, that it was certainly a, a bit ironic that as Crossrail opened, the RMT voted to go on strike, and I think that tells us something about the state that rail services are in in this country where you are actually getting cuts in rail services outside London, which are not properly announced. They're just kind of subtle cutbacks in the timetables. Often they happen because initially they say, oh, COVID's meant we have a shortage of drivers, and then it's a permanent cut. And it's just a gradual erosion. And with the cost of living crisis, people commuting less, it is a real question as to what will happen to railways in this country. You know, in Germany, for example, they're selling a ticket now for €9, Euros. I repeat €9, Euros. that will give you free travel for a month on all regional transport during June, July or August to encourage people to travel. Can you imagine if we did that in this country? It would just be extraordinary, but we won't.
0: It would probably cost €9 euros to travel on the Elizabeth line.
2: Yeah, if it does if you go um, you know, from one end to the other. Undoubtedly, it probably costs uh, almost more than €9. I don't years.
0: even know where it goes, to be honest.
2: <laughs> well, it's, it's still in three sections at the moment. It isn't properly joined up and you can't go to Bond Street.
0: Forget it then. <laughs> Just shut it down. <laughs> Our guest this week made his name with a simple phrase in a 1989 essay and a 1992 book, The End of History. While his argument has been endlessly debated, referenced and misunderstood, he's carried on publishing numerous books and essays, taking many appointments. His latest book is called Liberalism and Its Discontents. Francis Fukuyama, welcome to the show. Thanks very much for having me. Uh, Boris Bondarev, Russia's Envoy to the UN has resigned, saying, "I simply cannot any longer share in this bloody, witless, and absolutely needless ignominy." Um, you've been quite bullish on the war since since the beginning. Um, are you still feeling that this is uh, this is this could spell the end for Putin?
3: Well, I think uh, the Russians have done so much worse, and the Ukrainians so much better than anybody, uh, including me, believed before the war began. Uh, You know, the Russians have been pushed out of the area around Kyiv and now around Kharkiv, and they've reduced their ambitions to a little slice of the Donbass. And so I do think that there is some prospect that the Ukrainians could actually push them out of the areas they occupied after February 24th, although right now they're going through a uh, pretty tough patch. Uh, The Russians are making some gains. So as with all wars, you know, it's really impossible to predict. Uh, what the military outcome is going to be. But I do think that it's got a much larger political significance than simply for uh, Ukraine and Russia, because Russia has been at the core of a, you know, authoritarian wave. It's connected to all of the leading populists across uh, the world. And I think everybody is, you know, looking on Putin's success or failure as a model for how populists, you know, elsewhere will fare.
0: This week on the show, the Sue Gray Report is finally out. We will be dissecting the findings and the possible consequences. And we'll be speaking to Francis about populism, war and liberalism. Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, on our fifth birthday, we reflect on our own history, the highs, lows and how politics has changed. But first, a quick word from Roz.
2: There's only a few weeks left to grab hold of your tickets for our next live show at the Old Market Theatre in Hove near Brighton on Wednesday the 8th of June. The cast is myself... Dorian, Alex, and Ian, and we've got a special guest joining us too, Raphael Baer, Guardian columnist and leader writer, and also formerly the paper's Russia correspondent. Tickets are on sale now at theoldmarket.com, and Patreons have a special discount for all live shows. Get yours now, and we'll see you there. I'm looking forward to a swim beforehand.
0: First this week, Sue Gray's independent review into parties at Downing Street is finally finished. You can read it now on the government website. Um, It was trailed by um, uh, a photo that ITV published, which appears in the report, from November 2020, in which Boris Johnson raises a glass to some blurry friends as his advisor Lee Cain's leaving drinks. There is a lot of wine in the report, uh, and in fact, wine time Friday. (laughs) Naomi, there's not sort of bombshells in this but what what has sort of leapt out what are the the main takeaways from this
1: well i think just the sheer depravity of it um people weren't just you know having a a glass or raising a glass to an outgoing colleague or you know one quick drink it was getting drunk to the levels that people were vomiting and cleaners on presumably incredibly low wages having to clean up after them. And Johnson has said he'll apologise personally to them all. But you're right. None of the photos, none of the new uh, things that we're seeing today are more explosive than the photograph that was leaked to ITV um, a a day or so before the report came out. And so I can't see it being the thing that actually tips more Conservative MPs over into putting letters into the 1922 Committee.
0: Because what we see from um, some of these messages, from Martin Reynolds in particular, where he says, uh, he basically, we seem to have got away with it, yep. um, that these things were planned in ahead. Socially distance appears in uh, quote marks.
1: The COVID secure bar if, is now open.
0: As if ha 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 ha. So there's sort of, it's pla- these things were planned in advance, they, they tried to keep them secret, like don't be pictured coming out of, you know, number 10 with any, you know, with bottles. And they kind of knew, they knew that it was wrong. And then when these things did happen, the drinking seemed to be pretty excessive. Yep. That There was a kind of, sort of, sort of Bacchanalian. Yes,
1: Bacchanalian cult- is the right <laughs> word. Um, is-
0: culture and that this is not just Johnson, but also civil service, leadership. Yeah. Should not should somebody be resigning?
1: Yeah, of course. I mean, how many sacking slash resignations have there been? Like four in total, I think. I mean, obviously, Allegra Stratton wasn't even at them, but but was the first one to go um, purely for you know being video talking about how to cover up the mess as and when it did leak, and of course now it has. Um, of course, they shouldn't. We just live in an age now where there is so little accountability. So it's it's an incredibly depressing state of affairs. I was talking to a <clears throat> Labour MP earlier today who was up in Wakefield where we've got a by-election happening on the 23rd of June. Um, and I said, oh, you know, has it really cut through? Um, and he said, it has cut through to the extent that it is a plague on all your houses. And I think that's one of the most <clears throat> depressing things about all of this is that it, it has degraded public trust in Parliament and the political class to such an extent, and now potentially also the police.
0: And, and, and in civil service, yeah. yeah. Um, Roz, there was a kind of apology, uh, one of Boris Johnson's semi-apologies, uh, in which he said that he was, he was humbled and, uh, and, like the policeman in Casablanca, shocked to discover that drinking had been going on in this establishment. Um, what did you make of his, uh, his performance there?
2: I mean, humbled, it just it reminds me of you know kings deigning to pretend to wash poor people's feet on Maundy Thursday, you know, it's humbled, it's all it's all just such a complete pretense and the accepting complete responsibility. These are words that have entirely lost any meaning. They are purely performative and have become entirely divorced from any tangible action. And that is the triumph, if you like, of Johnson in his in, in the last few months. I mean, his, his explanation today for why he hadn't been fined when staffers had for parties at the same event when they'd been fined and he hadn't was because he just popped in to give a speech and then he left. So he wasn't really partying. I mean, he had every opportunity to then say... Right, okay, guys, we've said goodbye. Let's get back to work, everyone. And he didn't. And he just allowed it to happen.
0: Because what comes out of the report and um, the um, episode of Panorama, where they talk to um, anonymous Downing Street staffers, is that it was with the tacit, not so tacit, blessing of Johnson and senior civil servants. What he didn't do, whether or not, you know, however long he stayed at individual parties, what he didn't do as prime minister um, was go... We shouldn't be doing this. And it seems that nobody in, in a position of power said, oh, we shouldn't be doing this.
1: But, but worse than that, they said, we shouldn't be doing this, therefore don't get caught. <laughs> it,
0: it's almost yeah, 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 yeah.
1: They did say we shouldn't be doing
2: it. <laughs> but, but, but do not, it anyway. But do it anyway. The yeah. key the key words that will remain from today's report, that in the Sue Gray report that are quoted in an in a WhatsApp or an email sent by a senior civil servant were, we seem to have got away with it. And that's what they will do. They will get away with it. We seem to have got away with it. The emphasis has been on what everything looked like. Party, but don't walk out the front door holding a bottle of wine in case the press sees you. It's all about the optics it's all about the comms. And that is the, the, perhaps the most dismaying thing about it for me. The knowledge, the clear knowledge that this was not okay and yet the desire to do it nonetheless.
0: Um, Hugo Rifkin wrote in The Times that Johnson, uh, this was a couple of days ago, had beaten the scandal. says, the guy has a superpower. He twists reality. He slows it down and stretches it out until his own terrible mistakes become mundane. And even mentioning them makes you sound like a nag and a bore. Do you think that's true?
2: It's certainly an apt description of the effect he has on people. And it's certainly an apt description of perhaps the biggest weapon he has against Keir Starmer. And the way in which Starmer, if you like, tries to prosecute him, and I use that word advisedly because, of course, uh, Starmer was a prosecutor, it frames Johnson as the naughty boy who is being called out by tedious older people trying to hold him to account. And that very much has worked for Johnson. saint
1: Trinian's-esque, you know, you're on the side of the naughty...
2: Yeah, on but at the same time, when Hugo Rifkin talks about it as a superpower, it's not really a superpower. We have this myth that has grown up around Johnson that he is somehow, he has powers that none of the rest of us can understand. And I don't think that is true. He is only there because of the Conservative Party's weakness and refusal to remove him. And we should not elevate him in this way and pretend that he is particularly special he all he does is just lies and lacks lacks a conscience and purpose for what he does
0: now it's been said at various points over this now quite long-running scandal that it's sort of a distraction from something serious like the cost of living crisis you know that the scandal itself does not impact on people's lives but i've seen it argued this week that it gives this impression of entitlement and disconnection and. you know, one rule for us and kind of decadence behind closed doors that does actually feed into the politics of the cost of living crisis and that they join up. And that's the dangerous thing for a government is when these sort of different problems all seem to give the same impression. So do you think that it's, you know, the question of like, oh, well, are the the MPs going to send in their 54 letters? Probably not. But then the other question is looking forward to the next election. Do you think that this does, therefore, have long-lasting damage because it, it sort of merges with the Tories' other problems?
2: Yeah, and it does. And this is why the revelations about the cleaners and the rubbish and the wine stains and the mess and that they had to clean up after the parties cut through so much because it is a very vivid metaphor for the way that the rest of the country is having to endure the mess that this government is inflicting on the country and i think that it does cut through for that reason and you know it's it's not it's not just this it keeps on happening i mean we heard, we found out today that rishi sunak <laughs> flew to flew to wales at the weekend for a tory party fundraiser in a helicopter, because it's hard to get there by public transport and so on, at his own expense, I should add. And it cost him £10,000. Imagine having £10,000 to spend on a helicopter ride. It's just mind-blowingly distant bet, from the reality the people fundraiser experiencing. the didn't cover the cost of
1: it either. would be better <laughs> of just giving the money directly to the party and not doing the event.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah. Um... Francis, this is, is, as they say, a very British scandal.
3: Um, have you been following this story at all? Yes, yes, I have. I must say I find it kind of quaint that uh, in Britain you think that a prime minister ought to resign for going to a drunken uh, party <laughs> violating uh, COVID rules. In the United States, we have uh, Republicans that were conspiring to actually overturn a legitimate uh, Democratic election, uh, Kevin McCarthy, the House Minority Leader, uh, was caught texting uh, at the time of the January sixth insurrection that President Trump, you know, needs to stop it and uh, step down as president because it was an insurrection. Uh, and then he completely reversed his position and said, "No, this was just a peaceful demonstration." And nobody thinks that any of these Republicans ought to be held accountable. It wasn't just going to a party and getting drunk. It was actually trying to overturn uh, American democracy. And, you know, they're getting ready to try to do it uh, in the next election. And so I think that, you know, you're right about the optics of it. I mean, we have a governor, uh, Gavin Newsom, in California that was caught eating at a very fancy restaurant right in the midst of the, you know, the most severe COVID lockdowns. And that really just emphasized to everybody how out of touch the elites were. And so there's that similarity. But I think that the kinds of, you know, attacks on basic democratic values and institutions that we're experiencing is just off the charts, you know. And so (laughs) I think it's very nice that that in Britain you've still got a sense of decorum and, you know, you've still got a normative (laughs) framework that would allow you to, you know criticize Johnson but we got a much more severe problem i'm afraid in the united states but is, is what because we've we've we've
0: discussed many times about you know whether it is fair to call johnson trumpian what he has in common with trump i mean there are and there are many differences but is there a sort of sense a shared sense of of impunity of of norm breaking and as long as you feel like you've got enough people behind you there's, there's certainly going to be no moral
3: compulsion to take the blame to resign. And it's all about what you get away with. That's fair enough. But I think the kinds of norms uh, that we're talking about are really very different. Because, you know, I really don't think that Trump has any concept of what the rule of law means. You know, for him, the law is just a weapon that you use against your political uh, allies. And, you know, the damage that he is doing to the American system, you know, I think is, is much, much deeper. I don't know that Boris Johnson has really tested the limits of, you know, the kind of institutional damage he's willing to do to Britain uh, in order to stay in power. Although maybe you can tell me that, uh, you know. Yeah. yeah, Sorry. Bad news for you. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) It's it's pretty bad. Francis, it's pretty bad. Um, There's been a suite of legislation that the uh, Conservative majority party has managed to ram through Parliament. um, uh, in recent months, and it is a huge power grab. It's an incredibly authoritarian legislative agenda. We now no longer have an independent elections regulator. Uh, the Home Secretary now has given herself very, very much more draconian sweeping powers. so I'm afraid we are we are following fast in in the footsteps of those of you across the Atlantic.
2: And there was the prorogation of Parliament
0: Illegally. which is
2: often uh, legally, which is often underplayed but but I think was very, very important.
0: Um, well, this, <laughs> I, perhaps this makes me sound rather naive. Um, Johnson is facing another investigation by the Privileges Committee into whether he misled Parliament, uh, given that he said in November 2020 when he was asked whether he could say there was a party, he replied, no, but I'm sure whatever happened, the guidance and the rules were followed at all times. He did know, and the guidance and the rules were not followed at all times. So if it was me, if they came to me and said, Dorian, has Boris Johnson lied to Parliament and should he resign I would say yes. Um, Privileges Committee, um, you know, might come to different conclusions. The report's going to take months. Now, we discussed this with the Met investigation and the Sue Gray report Mm -hmm. and we were like does the delay help or hurt him you know does it kick the can down the road until nobody cares but what we found here is that actually people didn't stop caring maybe Tory MP stopped trying to get rid of him but the story certainly didn't go away so having yet another investigation how do you think that's going to play play? through
1: look it's no secret that Johnson's strategy has long been to draw out scandal after scandal for as long as possible until the anger dissipates and or other events take over the news agenda. And we saw Ukraine being the, the really obvious one uh, that that saw MPs who had previously called for him to go suddenly saying, well, now's not the time, we're in, we're in the middle of another crisis. Mm. Everyone knows he lied. Tory backbenchers don't need the Privileges Committee to tell them that he lied. And so I think if if the Sue Gray report hasn't finished him, which it probably hasn't, the findings of the Privileges Committee, whether they come tomorrow or in two months or two years, are unlikely to do so. The only silver lining in all of this, of course, is that Johnson is increasingly proving himself to be a complete electoral liability. Uh, so I'm sure Starmer will secretly be del- delighted that he's staying in post. I would be if I was him.
0: Um, Roz, Roger Gale came out and revived calls. Um, for him to resign, I thought in quite a sort of powerful um, interview on The World at One, he said, well, AKK's saying, oh, well, you know, it's okay to have a leaving do. And he says, well, you know, he says people had to miss loved ones' leaving do's, you know, at crematoriums and cemeteries across the country uh, at that point. And it, he, he was making a very strong moral case. Um, Steve Baker managed a, a, a snarky uh, tweet. How many other people are there? making that point. Clearly not enough uh, for a vote of no confidence, but but who else seems bothered?
2: Well, I think there are an awful lot of people who are bothered. And from everything I hear, there are people who are disgusted and would love to move. I don't think the majority of the party is any more enthralled to Johnson as they have been. But... They did not, of course, move after the bad results in the local elections. I thought that they would, and they didn't. And I think the reason that they didn't is because the cost of living crisis has worsened so much since then. Inflation is up. The red lights are flashing right across the board in terms of the state of this country. And I think that changed Tory MPs' calculations, because the worse that this gets, the worse the situation in which, into which any incoming PM would find themselves the less of an incentive there is for anyone else to take over and to step forward. Because let's face it, the way things are going, they're going to be kicked out in the next election anyway, which is probably going to be in a couple of years max. Why would you take over at this point? It all feels a bit last days of the Roman Empire to me at the moment to just somehow have to play out with Johnson in charge because nobody else wants it badly enough.
0: Now it's time to answer a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. Harish Hirani asks, Ray Laura Kunzberg taking over the Sunday morning slot from Andrew Marr. Based upon all the senior journalists that are out there at the moment, does the panel think this is the best appointment the BBC could have made? (sighs) Ross.
2: Well, I, mean, I don't know if it's actually the best because, yeah, uh, you know, there's actually relatively few people who are seriously capable of inter- interrogating senior politicians live on a program. Let's face it, there's probably. But your bad... name should have been considered. No, 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 because you I... are one of them. Well, I would hit it. No, another Ross <laughs> Another
0: Ross was considered. <laughs>
2: Yes, and you know, he's a he's yeah. a great guy, you know. Roz, who is far far more famous and indeed, uh, broadcast friendly than me, no, absolutely a suggestion that I could do this job. I think Laura Krenzberg will be able to do a far better job than I could at this. I think she will hopefully come. I think in... she'll do a
1: better job than Mark.
2: Yeah, I think she will. Uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, he's he's yes, Andrew Moore I haven't been terribly impressed by lately. I think that she has been. Really trashed, by, particularly by some sections of the left uh, in the last few years. Um, I think a lot of those people were frustrated at the BBC's failure as they saw it to sufficiently expose and cut through the lies of the government. I understand that impulse, but I can also empathise enormously with an incredibly difficult job that she was trying to do because you have to be as impartial and even-handed as possible at the BBC and inevitably that is going to piss one side or the other off at some point. And while nobody is going to be a perfect political editor, I thought that she did a reasonable job at it. I thought she was very maligned. I was disappointed today to see various people uh, criticising Chris Mason, the new BBC political editor, her replacement, um, who was being attacked for not spending enough time on Twitter. And he got back to some uh, one of his critics and said, my priority is reporting and BBC apps and the TV and the radio and all the other channels through mm. which the BBC and I am on Twitter and I tweet every day, but it's not my absolute priority. And you would not believe how furious some people are that Twitter is not his
0: absolute priority. Chris Mason is so impartial that I had a we had a, a, a very polite argument. Oh, we did at didn't the we? podcast awards. <laughs> yeah, years um, ago. A few years ago about. And we were going, well, it's really important to have a kind of more opinionated, impassioned, uh, you know, podcast such as Romaniacs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sometimes, the, you know, the, the, the BBC sort of impartiality is perhaps creating this false equivalence and, and, and it's, it's a sort of, you know, misreporting Brexit in, in some way. And he was adamant, you know, that it was, it was partially, it was, it, he had it. He had it in his bones. Very much. Yeah. Um, I would say the massive criticism that I had at Laura Kinsberg was basically the Twitter aspect of her work. Peston, same thing. It seems to be a, a hazard of the political reporter's job that if you want to be on Twitter a lot. But a lot of the time, you are just putting out there bullshit
1: yeah.
0: that, you know, that anonymous sources have told you. And that got in the way. Of the work that she was doing, I think. Whereas when she's in the mode um, that she was on, for example, the the panorama this week, or that she would be on in this show, where she's just doing, you know, straight interviewing and tough interviewing, I think she's very good at that. Like, is she the mm-hmm. best in the country? I don't know. You know, there's other people that we think of, like you know, mm-hmm. Emily Maitlis. Uh, Emma Barnett, who are very, very good at, at that as well. But I feel my personal feeling is that the worst thing about Laura Kunzberg is associated with her old job and not this job.
2: Yeah, and it's worth pointing out though that she learned from that, and she stopped tweeting so much, and she stopped doing that, and uh, you know her her reporting style changed uh, probably partly due to to pressure from her bosses. But, you know, it's a relatively new medium. She learnt from that. And as I say, I think she would have been trashed by one side or the other and regularly indeed was trashed by both sides, no matter what she said.
1: And I'm not sure that the anger with the BBC that they took out on her was just about, you know, the sort of perceived lack of holding this... Dreadful government to account every single minute of the day, but was about, you know, predated that in terms of putting Farage on question time so many more times than Mm -hmm. any kind of equivalent on the progressive left Mm -hmm. and things like that. There'd been a build up that had long preceded her role, frankly, as political.
2: Yeah. And of course, she wouldn't have been responsible for those decisions.
0: No. So, I mean, basically, I think you have to see how somebody does the job. I don't, I don't try, I try not to exercise over appointments. Um, Because sometimes people can really impress you. There are people that I have not generally enjoyed the broadcasting of Amal Rajan, but I think he's been, you know, very good on the Today program. And it's like, well, fine, good. Let's base it on their actual performance rather than what my assumptions. Yeah. Our guest this week is Francis Fukuyama, political scientist and author of several books, including his new one, Liberalism and Its Discontents. Um, Francis, it's the 30th anniversary of your first book, The End of History and The Last Man. And I've seen it talked about so many times as if that were a sort of complacent, rather triumphalist prediction of smooth sailing from now on. Um, I went back to it again recently uh, to remind myself that it's not that at all. Did you accept at some point that you would just have to live with this weird caricature of your thesis um, and then just sort of carry on regardless?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I've got much choice uh, in that regard. Um, I, you know, I would say roughly every week have to explain to somebody uh, that the end of history was actually not my phrase, that it came from uh, Hegel and Karl Marx and that uh, it doesn't mean that events will stop happening. It's really a thesis about the direction of modernization and where it's pointing. Uh, It does seem to me that, you know, (laughs) there's there's really no uh, number of times that I can repeat this that will get <laughs> the idea uh, that I'm saying something uh, you know much more simple-minded out of the heads of, of most people so I don't see that I've got much choice but to but to live with it
0: <laughs> well your new book um, seems to argue that the principles of liberalism are still sound and it's the execution it is is often seriously flawed so That begs the question, why is it so hard to put those ideas into practice, ideas which I think still on paper many people subscribe
3: to? Well, I think uh, it's partly that liberalism evolved uh, over the last couple of generations in ways that made it much less attractive. And so when people criticize liberalism, they're not criticizing the underlying principles so much as their application. And there's a kind of left-wing and a right-wing version of that. So on the the right-wing version was really the uh, extension of economic liberalism into what's called neoliberalism that really happened under Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and then all of these, uh, you know, University of Chicago economists like Milton Friedman that made an argument that you know markets were pretty much the solution to any social dilemma and that states inevitably simply got in the way of efficiency and did bad things and i think led to a you know an economic world that was much more unequal culminating in the 2008 financial crisis which then you know i think was a direct spur to the populism that subsequently emerged on both the right and the left and i think that on the other side of the spectrum uh, there was a progressive reinterpretation of inequality uh in identity terms, so that it wasn't something that applied to a broad working class but uh, to specific groups, racial minorities, women, gays, mm-hmm. and lesbians, and so forth but mm-hmm. it it further evolved into something that became illiberal because it led to you know intolerance of uh, Things that didn't correspond to that particular orthodoxy, to thinking about societies as a collection of fixed groups rather than um, uh, individuals with individual uh, agency. And so I think that when people complain about liberalism, they're not complaining about a system that protects the rights of individuals, you know, through a rule of law. They're complaining either about the economic you know, neoliberalism, or they're complaining about a certain kind of identity politics. So that's really what I think is at the core of the current polarization. Because some of that seems to
0: be just this sort of overuse, the perhaps excessive flexibility of the word, because you've got you've got neoliberalism, which is not supported by many of the people who, you know, in American political terms, are called liberals, where it's more sort of associated with um, the, the left than it is in Britain. And then... Even the phrase classically liberal is something that I often find quite appears in the Twitter bios of some pretty right-wing right wing people. You suggest at the beginning of the book, almost this, this idea of, sort of humane liberalism. Is it is it sort of like that it's trying to sort of re- reclaim a version of it that hasn't acquired all of these different and sometimes negative yeah. associations? So
3: you're right. I mean, there may be a branding problem just with the word liberalism because it has been associated with these different uh uh, meaning, so the people that are cl- claim to be classical liberals uh, that are right wing are in the uh, United States what what we call libertarians. Really, they, they don't like the state, they don't like redistribution. Mm. You know, in my definition of liberalism, it really has to do with the fundamental protection of a sphere of autonomy that is actually compatible with a lot of different you know economic systems. And so I think. Sweden and Denmark, uh, two social democratic states that tax their citizens at more than 50% of GDP, I believe liberal states because they fundamentally have a rule of law and they fundamentally protect a, you know, a range of individual rights. And so it's compatible with a fairly redistributive state. It's also compatible with one that's less redistributed. And so that's the kind of meaning, you know, of, of liberalism that. I want to get back to, so maybe I got to come up with a different word. Uh, you know, maybe humane liberalism is you know is is a little bit better because it doesn't have these other connotations, but yeah, I'm not sure what that is. and there's pressure um
0: you argue on liberalism from both left and right. But as you point out it's it's asymmetrical. Um, I mean, can you even compare like the excesses of identity politics to the anti-democratic turn of the of the Trumpian Republican Party, you know, in terms of the level of power and therefore threat?
3: Well, in terms of power, no, I think that uh, right now you have conservative parties that are in power or knocking at the gates of power, you know, like in the United States, for example, because of the right-wing criticisms of critical race theory, you have a lot of state legislatures controlled by Republicans that are actually trying to mandate or ban books, you know, and and mandate exactly what kind of history uh, should be taught. The power that's exerted by the left is much more subtle because it's fundamentally cultural. And it really is dominant in, in more elite kinds of institutions like, you know, universities or the arts or legacy uh, media, I don't, therefore, discount the threat from the left because, you know, universities are what shape the uh, thinking of the next generation. And I can see a kind of creeping illiberalism just in the kinds of attitudes that a lot of my own students have. But you're absolutely right that the real threat that's hanging over us right now so one that we were referring to earlier, which is the overt use of political power to really dismantle uh, liberal institutions uh, in places where they've been very long established. So when you say sort of some of the things you might hear from your own students, it's like what what is that?
0: What is that form of illiberalism that you that you worry about?
3: Well, you know, it's the kind of statement where you preface whatever you're going to say speaking as a, and then you can fill in the blank, you know, as a woman, as a, you know, uh, as a black person, as an immigrant, uh, I believe in such and such. And what that tends to do is to uh, essentialize something that is a fixed characteristic, you know, that you have no control over, but to say that it's kind of essential to who you are and to your credibility. You know, the problem is that in a liberal society, You know, I mean, we don't deny that these group prejudices and and group characteristics have a lot of significance, but we also believe that individuals should have agency and therefore we should be able to judge individuals, you know, as individuals and not simply by their membership in particular Groups. I have a student, uh, you know, who was born in India, for example, who, you know, started saying, well, he thought liberalism was really obsolete because it needed to be replaced by a system of group preferences. And he cited, you know, th- their special programs for Dalits and other scheduled, uh, you know, castes and tribes in India. And that was a good thing. And I think that it's understandable why uh, you have these kinds of programs, but it's also very dangerous because, in a certain way, that's what Narendra Modi is trying to do. You know, mm. he's also trying to divide Indians according to their religion and establish political rights based on what religion you profess. Uh, and I think if you start down that road, uh, you're going to end up like India, where there's been this huge erosion of basic liberal principles uh, under, under the, you know, the the Modi prime ministership, you know, liberalism was really invented in the 17th century because of the European wars of religion. It was a, it was a means of governing di- religiously diverse societies. And, you know, India is going to head exactly down that road if it insists on being a Hindu state rather than a liberal state. Mm. So I think that's the kind of fear that I have about that kind of thinking.
1: Frances, uh, it's Naomi here. Um, we can't not talk about Biden and Trump. Um, you are often misrepresented or misquoted. So forgive me if you didn't say this. Um, but it was reported uh, here that you said the Biden victory was evidence of liberal democracy's ability to correct itself. If so, are you predicting that if Trump runs again, he won't get a second term?
3: No, no, unfortunately, uh, I wish I could uh, make that prediction. Um I mean I do think that uh the fact that Trump lost the election, you know, does indicate that we're still a democracy and we can still make different choices. What's really been troubling is the whole January 6th attempt, yeah. you know, to to overturn the election, but even more troubling than that is the reaction of the Republican party to those events because you know, what you would have expected of a party that really believed in democracy was then to completely marginalize the people that were behind that that insurrection. And instead, they've done the opposite. They've tried to normalize it and say, this is just normal politics. Don't worry about it. Uh, All the extremists are on the other side that are criticizing. And that's really what makes me very worried because it means that there's maybe – a third of the electorate, a majority of the Republican Party that actually believes that the election was stolen, that they don't have any confidence in American institutions. And, you know, I think that's going to be a huge problem for American democracy going forward if that number of citizens really don't believe in the fundamental integrity of your institutions.
1: You've called the U.S. a vetocracy where nothing big can get done. Um, given that political polarisation makes it extremely hard to reform the system. Do you sort of feel that there's a sense of being doomed to paralysis in the U.S. now?
3: Well, yeah, I'll give you a very concrete example of that, which is gun control. Uh, We just had this terrible shooting uh, in Texas, you know, where, again, more than a dozen children were shot by some crazed uh, gunman. Uh, And if you look at the poll data, you know, a very large majority of Americans believe that there should be some basic measures like you know registration of all firearms you know this sort of thing not taking guns away from people necessarily but at least And is that, is that, to that different
1: to to the polling that happened after sandy hook has there been a shift or is that just an immediate thing that happened no I, it's thing
3: it's, that it's happened been there for a, a, a well. very long time uh uh i think with each of these succeeding well uh, it's complicated because the polarization then affects the way that people you know answer uh, pollsters when they're asked about this but It's been very clear for some time that there is a minority of Americans that are absolutely absolutist on on gun rights that doesn't amount to more than about a third of of the country. But because of the constitutional system that we have, they can exercise a veto over any kind of gun control measures. Mm -hmm. And in fact... uh, you know the constitution does uh, it compared to a classic West, westminster system we have many many more veto points than uh, than you have in in britain but we've added to them by this filibuster rule which means that the senate can't actually pass any legislation unless 60 out of uh, 100 senators agree which means that 40 senators are sufficient to veto uh, anything and that's why we do, you know we don't have gun control legislation despite pretty overwhelming evidence that Americans would really like something like that so yeah that's a that's an example of you know how the system is really stuck uh, Francis as I understand it the your sort of
0: thesis um, that liberal democracy was almost sort of the the ultimate you know where where sort of progress had been moving where history had been moving and that that thesis is only falsifiable if there is another model that proves, you know, more popular across the world. And I want to look at sort of two versions of that. Now, in the years before the invasion of Ukraine, Putin was working very hard around the world to promote his belief that liberal democracy was a an obsolete doctrine. And, you know, openly and not, you know, and also clandestinely lending support to various authoritarian populists. Now, in 2017, there were a lot of them doing rather well. Um, where do you think they stand now, five five years later? How do you feel about that wave?
3: Well, first of all, uh, you know, the two leading authoritarian powers, Russia and China, are not really comparable because Russia always presented a much less attractive model. I mean, I think everybody mm. understands that whatever economic success they've had is due to gas and oil. And, uh, uh, you know, it's a very poor competitor technologically. However, uh, you know, there are populists that really like uh, Putin. Uh, you know, Trump, uh, uh, Viktor Orban, Eric Zemmour, Marine Le Pen, you know, all of them uh, have expressed sympathy for this kind of unbridled, you know, strongman rule. I think that Ukraine has been one of the biggest disasters of authoritarian decision-making. I think historically it's very hard to see another decision that was quite quite as bad, and it stems directly from the lack of checks and balances in the current Russian system. I mean, you know, even the defense minister and the foreign minister have to sit at the end of this, you know, 30-foot-long table when they talk to Putin. He's so Mm. isolated and and off by himself. Uh, I think that, you know, what you're seeing in China is a milder version of that right now with this really crazy Zero COVID uh, uh, policy that's led to the lockdown of, you know, Shanghai, a city of 25 million people, it looks like indefinitely. Uh, we, you know, with huge social costs, uh, economic costs uh, to China's overall growth rate, and the the story is not in. I, I think that uh, you know, in the early days of COVID, a lot of people were saying, well, these authoritarian, unconstrained regimes can do better than democracies because they can act decisively. Uh, and, and and move quickly in a, a pandemic. But I think that what we're seeing now is that that kind of unconstrained decision-making can also lead you into these unbelievable, you know, fiascos. Uh, so, you know, we'll have to see whether these systems actually are as good as some people think they are.
0: Well, I see, you know, I see in authoritarian populists both ones in power and ones who aspire to power. A lot of people in the Putin mold, this kind of swaggering, um of a kind of macho nationalist strongman china's system is, seems to be a lot you know a lot stronger in terms of you know its economic strength also its surveillance state i wonder how and that works for the ccp i wonder how exportable that is like are there other countries that are trying to follow the chinese model
3: well i think that it's really not possible for any country outside of you know, the immediate Chinese cultural sphere uh, to really take, take up that model because it follows on a lot of deep traditions in Chinese history. Uh, for example, bureaucracy and the idea that you have to take a civil service exam uh, to rise in a bureaucracy. This idea in China is at least 2,200 years old and is one of the reasons why Chinese government has... Well, first of all, why Chinese culture prizes education, because that's what you needed to take the exam. But, you know, you had competent, uh, centralized, but competent government in in China for, for centuries. And this is simply not the case in Latin America, in the Middle East, in, you know, large parts of Asia, where you have much weaker governments and no similar Chinese tradition of bureaucracy and meritocracy. Uh, so I do think that there are limits. Now that doesn't mean that people aren't going to be inspired. So you had these uh, African authoritarian regimes like Rwanda or Ethiopia that claim to be following a kind of Chinese model of state-directed capitalism and you know pretty nasty dictatorship, uh, but they're not really Chinese. You know that that's not really a China model. I, I think yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's not it's not easily uh, exportable.
0: And one thing I wonder about one of liberalism's problems is that and um, you know that it is it is very you know that rationalism and the scientific method and so on are very very important to it the rule of law like sensible things does that does that often lead to the fact that defenders of the, of this system and of these norms and institutions just struggle to have the same emotional appeal as as their opponents
3: well look there's two separate issues that that you've touched upon. Uh, The one is the emotional appeal. And I think the emotional appeal doesn't have to do with liberalism's uh, dependence on science and scientific inquiry. It does have to do with a kind of ambivalent relation that many liberals have with the nation. Uh, So liberals believe that human rights are universal and that they should be protected uh, for all human beings, regardless of whose jurisdiction they're, they're living in and it oftentimes leads them to believe that they're global citizens rather than citizens of a particular country but emotionally people really like liberal ideas when they're embedded in a in a particular place that is their own you know that's really why the ukrainians are fighting i think mm. so tenaciously that's i think one of the problems of of liberalism is that oftentimes it doesn't generate that sense of national identity that then gives people uh, a strong sense of loyalty. The cognitive issue is, I think, a little bit separate because there's been a critique of modern natural science that I think really started on the left uh, with people like Michel Foucault, who began to say that science wasn't this objective, neutral arbiter of of the truth. Uh, Rather, it was something that was being used by elites to uh marginalized certain groups. And you know, Foucault gave several pretty interesting examples of that. Uh, and therefore, you know, you couldn't simply trust uh, science. And that, uh, I think, has migrated over to the extreme right, where during the Covid epidemic, you found people on the right making, you know the identical argument that, Mask wearing vaccinations. This was not scientifically justified. It's simply a matter of elites behind the scenes trying to use science to manipulate you. And you combine that with the internet, and you've got this kind of disastrous situation that we're all in right now, where anybody can say anything they want about any subject. And I think that then makes a liberal society pretty difficult because, you know, in a liberal society, we actually have to have freedom of speech and the ability to debate ideas and, and so forth. And that's been severely challenged in recent years.
0: And finally, if you look at the history of liberalism, it's always moved forward thanks to the efforts of these big thinkers who can rejuvenate and redefine it. Um, even if, if, you know, it's this case of, for example, neoliberalism. It's a, a redefinition that I'm not so keen on. Um, where do you see that intellectual energy now? Does it take some really kind of exciting intellectual to to sort of come along and go, okay, this is a way, this is a new way to get people excited about liberal democracy, and also to perhaps address some of
3: its flaws. Well, maybe. I think, however, that the real appeal of liberalism oftentimes is uh, in not being illiberal. You know, if you think about the history of liberalism, it arises because Europe was going through these wars of religion that were completely devastating, Uh, And liberalism, you know, brought about peace, a a way to live peacefully together. Again, Europe fought uh, wars over national identity in this very aggressive form of nationalism in the two world wars. And after 1945, liberalism seemed pretty good. Uh, And so I think you may be, we may be trapped in this kind of cycle where the greatest appeal of liberalism really Appears when its enemies, you know, seem to be ascendant, and people can see very clearly, you know, that uh, liberalism may seem a little bit boring in the short run, but it's certainly better than, you know, living under, let's say, constant, you know, Russian uh, artillery barrages and 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 the things that are produced by illiberal uh, societies. In addition, you know, I do think that successful liberal politicians also think about culture and ways of shaping national identity to be inclusive and something that's appealing. So, you know, you think about liberalism over the centuries. I mean, that's where all the innovation, economic progress, you know, openness to new ideas that then leads to happier lives. That's where it comes from. You know, the golden age of the Netherlands, Britain in the 19th century, inventing the Industrial Revolution, the United States in the 20th century developing all these new cultural forms you know jazz blues hip-hop you know whatnot so i think it's a combination of fleeing illiberalism plus you know the ability to point people towards the real attractiveness of living in a free society that you know is, is part of the secret of getting people to you know come back to those that set of ideas
0: thanks francis Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar, Roz.
2: Yeah, I wanted to talk about uh, an essay, actually, by Nick Clegg. I know Naomi's, uh, one of Naomi's very favourite people, um, who, of course, uh, you could call a famous liberal, but uh, is now working for Meta, Facebook as was. And he's written an essay on Medium about what the metaverse is going to look like, or at least what uh, the meta metaverse might look like. And it's got very little attention, which I think is a shame. We're going to be discussing it uh, as part of a special on the sister podcast, The Bunker, next week, so, so watch out for that. But... Um, He's got various ideas for how to, what kind of rules and laws we might have in the metaverse. And of course, it's going to be a very different place from social media, which is mostly based around words and typing things. And the metaverse will be much more about speech. So, one of the things he proposes is that everything that you say in the metaverse is recorded and is kept for 15 minutes 30 minutes and then deleted but in that time you might you have the opportunity if you wish to to complain to act upon what you might see as hate speech and to take that recording and use it again and you know these kind of ideas are really important and i don't think that they're getting enough At public attention, and that these ideas, which are clearly central to the way Meta is thinking about how to run the metaverse, um, I I think it's vital that they're discussed. And I think it's extraordinary that we're not discussing them all.
3: Francis, what story has been interesting you? Well, actually, I would uh, expand on the last uh, comments, because I do think that uh, there's been this extraordinary inability, uh, particularly in the United States, to actually deal with the Um, problems that have been created by this new digital world in terms of content moderation, Uh, like everything else in the United States that's been polarized between two parties that both think that the internet is dangerous and should be regulated, but they completely disagree on, you know, in in what manner it should be done. Uh, But I don't think that people really kind of understand the extent to which their surveillance state has already, uh, you know, existed. You don't even need the metaverse uh, uh, to have this kind of pervasive uh, Chinese-style surveillance. It's just that it's in the hands of uh, private companies. And I think, you know, that realization just hasn't hit people. And it would drive a very different policy if people understood that. Naomi. What do you have under your radar?
1: But I feel like we haven't really talked enough about Brexit. Um, So it is a Brexit-related story. Uh, We are heading fast into festival season. And today Mick Jagger waded into the Brexit debate saying, there are lots of supply chain problems, a lot of shortages, a lot of problems because of Brexit. Brexit has not been a success for the British touring industry. It's not a success. It's a nightmare. And... Today, Bruce Springsteen launched his European tour dates and the UK does not feature. There is small print saying UK tour dates to be confirmed, but ordinarily... UK would be confirmed with your European tour dates and this is surely an issue around the red tape and the bureaucracy of getting session musicians in and, and the visa requirements and all, everything that the music industry has been talking about for the last five years and uh, yeah it's, it's good to see more big famous voices entering the debate good even if it is a bit late.
0: I bet Keith likes Brexit, though. He's got strong fuck it all lever vibes. (laughs) And what about you? Um, Something going on in um, American politics, obviously kind of like pushed out of the headlines by that um, horrific shooting in Texas. Um, But Trump, um, because he's desperate for attention and relevance, has been supporting lots and lots of... uh, Republican candidates, largely challengers, um, who agree with him that the election was stolen, yada, 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 um, had some success with with J.D. Vance in Ohio, I think. Um, This time he wanted to basically remove the three uh, officials, including the governor in um, Georgia, who um, basically accepted that Biden had won in Georgia and therefore um, had won the election. And um, failed in all three cases um, by quite some way, and now it looks as if he's he's going to be going against Brian Kemp, the governor, who will be running again and very narrowly lost to Stacey Abrams last time, and that therefore Trump may end up costing the Republicans um, control of the governorship there. So. You can't sort of write off his influence, and sometimes he gets behind somebody who really works. But there are other cases around the country where he's been supporting some real—I mean, there are some people, some of the people he's been supporting, are like so extreme, and it's good to see a lot of them falling on their asses. The more that he puts his neck on the line for candidates who then lose, the weaker his hold on the party and on voters looks, and then that therefore could ex- could affect what happens to him in twenty twenty four. So it was a bit of good news there
2: good excellent
0: and that's the show thanks to Roz. thank you naomi thanks and our guest francis fukuyama thank you very much stay tuned for our extra bit exclusively for patreons you'll hear a preview after our theme song demonism monster by corner shop and a thanks to our latest backers
1: hello from me and thanks to greg coburn geraldine mcclure Edward Savage, Lee Rhodes, Philippa Sturt, Andrew McEwen-Henschel, Amy G. Glees, ta-da, and Linda Kerr.
2: Big thanks from me to Ross Pollard, Chris Law, Polly Eccleston, Ben Lindsay, James Brown, Keith Tarran, Jessica Poynton, Kringleberry Pies, (laughs) Dave Fitzpatrick and Laura Wade.
0: And finally, thanks from me to Mike Palmer, Ross Hamilton, Anne Silverlyn Lamvick. Ruth Folds, Douglas Forsyth, Pip Friars, Bridjo, Tom Nealon, Paul G, and Sim. And just before we finish, a special hello to listener Agnes Azapardi, who's written in. Thank you from from all of us. The stress of following politics is worth it to know the kind of difference the podcast could make. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? is presented by Dorian Linsky with Naomi Smith and Roz Taylor. Audio production came from me, Robin Lieburn, the producers of Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofrenovic, group editor is Andrew Harrison, lead producer Jacob Jarvis, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Oh God, What Now? Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, on our fifth anniversary edition, we're rolling back the years. Now, Ian was there with me, the first one. You guys came late. You was j- Peter there? Peter was there. It was me, Ian and Peter. Yeah. Um, you've Johnny come lately. So basically, you <laughs> realised that, that the, was the bandwagon thing. was yeah. rolling <laughs> and you wanted to jump on it. Um, Not that
1: you realised that a manhole probably wasn't the greatest idea even, <laughs> even back in 2017. No,
0: we just thought we were going to have nothing but men <laughs> for the duration of the show. Uh, Uh, No, no, of course. Um, And that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our weekly mini-cast Oh God What Else every Monday morning,
3: exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week.